Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. This July, NATO will hold its annual summit in Vilnius against the backdrop of the ongoing war in Ukraine. While the support of the United States and its European NATO allies has been indispensable in Kyiv's efforts to resist Russian aggression, calls to do more are growing as the war drags on. The issue of potential NATO membership for Ukraine has stirred particularly significant debate, while many argue that Ukraine's full integration into the alliance is essential for European security, this is far from the consensus view. To address this issue of where the alliance needs to go on Ukraine, we're very pleased to welcome back to the podcast Sandy Vershbaugh and Ian Brzezinski, who recently co-authored quite an excellent article arguing for decisive action at the Vilnius summit, including on the contentious issue of Ukrainian NATO membership. Ian and Sandy, um, it's great to have you back. Very happy to be here. Um, Quick quick bios. Um, Sandy is a distinguished fellow at the Atlantic Council's Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security and Eurasia. He previously served as the Deputy Secretary General of NATO, U.S. Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, and U.S. Ambassador to Russia. And Ian is a resident senior fellow with the Scrowcroft Center for Strategy and Security and is a member of the Atlantic Council's Strategic Advisors Group. And he has more than two decades of experience in the U.S. Uh, in U.S. national security ma- matters having served in senior policy positions in both the U.S. Department of Defense and the U.S. Congress. So before we dive into the specifics of the paper, um, Ian, maybe I can start with you to set the table a little bit in terms of how you would characterize the state of the debate over security guarantees for Ukraine. Um, You and I, I feel like, have been in a number of sessions in recent weeks where this has been quite the focal issue. And I wonder if you could just give listeners a little bit of the lay of the land, and then we can dive into where your paper and recommendations fit into all of that. Thanks. Uh, Andrea, when, when you ask about the issue of security guarantees it is, and Ukraine, it is the issue du jour. And it's the issue du jour because we're in the context of a hot war Um, triggered by Russia's invasion of Ukraine, an unjustified and brutal invasion of Ukraine. Uh, We're in the context of a imminent, if not already underway, Ukrainian counteroffensive. And we're approaching literally two months to this day, a NATO summit. And some serious thinking is going on uh, about, you know, where will this war lead? Uh, What kind of security architecture will emerge for Europe from this conflict. And so a lot of thinking is going on in that in NATO capitals and in Ukraine for sure, uh, about where Ukraine will fit in that security architecture. And that will be one of the issues that will dominate discussions leading up to this summit. It will shape the decisions that the summit makes regarding Ukraine's aspirations for, for NATO. So a lot is at stake uh, at, at this. And I don't want to go on too long, but there are essentially three models out there um, that people are considering. One is a porcupine defense model in which Ukraine stands on its own, is heavily armed by the West. It's a flawed model. It's the most flawed model. It, so there's a porcupine model, heavily armed Ukraine, but outside security structures uh, supported through arms transfers and economic assistance. Essentially, Ukraine left on its own in a gray zone of European security. 
A second model is a coalition of the willing providing secure guarantees to, to Ukraine. Certainly better, but not as complete as the third model. Uh, third model being NATO membership, where the full force of the transatlantic community is put behind Ukraine's security. And that, of course, is, in my view, much more robust than the, the second and first models. Sandy, just as we kind of get into the recommendations in the memo, but one of the considerations is the question of when, when NATO membership would make uh, would make sense. And a lot of people uh, talking about the 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 problem that if this is a long war, as I think we all expect it likely will be, um, when would the timing be right for NATO membership, and what? So that I feel like that is one of the big questions that people are grappling with on the NATO membership question is the question of when. Yeah, thanks. Uh, it's a good place to begin. Uh, first of all, Ian, I think, has, has outlined this, the context very well. And uh, I think we wrote our memo because we were concerned that there wasn't enough bold thinking either in Washington or in some of the major NATO capitals. And we were trying to stir stir the pot a little bit. And I think we've been successful, at least in that regard. But uh, as you said in your intro, uh, we're still far away from a consensus among the people who care about this issue. And I fear that uh, Vilnius will go down in history as a missed opportunity to at least begin to turn the corner on this issue of uh, Ukraine's long-term security, and which, which I agree with Ian. And we say that in our in our memo to NATO leaders. Ultimately, the only really reliable guarantee of Ukraine's security in the long term is to have it anchored in NATO. I think we've seen the, uh, the costs of being uh, too timid on this ever since uh, the Bucharest summit decision, which sort of said they were going to be members, but did absolutely nothing to advance that process. Now we've seen the, the consequences of our indecision, and we don't want to repeat the same mistake again. Uh, but I think it is also true to come to your question that even if we could get a consensus that the ultimate destination, as we argue, should be NATO membership, it's not likely to be something that can happen instantaneously after the after the conflict ends. And I think some of these models may end up being used in tandem with one another, maybe even sequentially, uh, as the most realistic way of getting to 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 the to the, the final goal, which uh, which should be NATO membership. For example, the porcupine model, which I agree is not necessarily the, uh, the best long-term solution, but it may be the best we can do in the short term to you know, continue what we're doing, but on a more systematic basis of hardening Ukraine's defense and deterrence posture, committing in as binding a way as possible to kind of the further armament and training and equipping of Ukrainian armed forces so that they are truly an indigestible porcupine uh, in the face of any aggression. Uh, but then uh, hopefully a, once a, a new equilibrium has been established to move, move on to uh, more direct security guarantees, maybe by a coalition of the willing as a first step, but ideally going directly to, uh, to full NATO integration. This would be several years from now, so, so we, we need to get on with the uh, what's needed so that when the hostilities end, however they end, and we don't know how that's going to be, uh, we have in place a plan to ensure that Ukraine is strong enough, that, equipped well enough, that the Russians won't even think of invading a third time. 
Uh, then we move on and it will require creative diplomacy with Russia. We're not just going to ram this down their throats. Uh, I think some of the things that we did in the past in the, in the 90s may need to be revived and adapted uh, so that we can create a European security system that once again includes Russia, but not be as naive as we were the first time around that Russia still has an imperial agenda, very, very uh, visible below the surface, which has uh, struck with a vengeance, uh, particularly since uh, the first and second invasion. Let's not have a third invasion. If I could add on that, Andrew, because you know you asked the questions: When can we bring Ukraine into, into NATO? And you know, Sandy and I, when we wrote our memo, we were, I think we're thinking a little bit more boldly than most. But we defined, we constrained our memo to what is, what is the consent? What can this consensus tolerate at this point within the alliance? Because the alliance is a consensus-driven organization. But we should also think, you know, theoretically, what can we do, and then build off of that. And in my view, you know, it's very important that we don't want Ukrainian membership to be determined by Russia. So when those who come out and say, well, we'll address that when hostilities end, well, we don't know when hostilities end. I mean, th this war is headed really more towards probably a long-term standoff akin to Korea during the 1950s and 60s than a, you know, a, a, a group hug after, after the conflict. So we just can't defer the decision to Russia. But, you know, we, we don't want to give Russia an indefinite veto on that. That's what the end of hostilities criteria would lead to. What NATO could do in theory, assuming there was consensus, is grant Ukraine membership right away, in theory, with the proviso that the alliance of security guarantees would only cover Ukrainian territory that Kiev controls at the moment of accession. And then the remainder could be added on you know, once Ukraine's jurisdiction is, is, is reestablished. And in some ways that occurred with Germany uh, after the end of the Cold War and with German reunification. And some would come back, don't do that, don't do that, because Russia could challenge that by force. But to me, it seems really unlikely that Russia, based on this performance of its forces today, would really want to risk the potential consequences such aggression would, would unleash. I know Jim wants to jump in, but to me that, I mean, this it's such an important issue because as we've all acknowledged, the war could go on for a very long time. And so if we're waiting for some kind of magical end and assuming that there'll be a clear end to the hostility and the fighting, and only then will we start considering bringing Ukraine into NATO, that, that's a very distant proposition. And so I think one of the things that I like so much about your memo is you also outline several interim steps, things that we can do while the hostilities are ongoing, demonstrate the commitment. So I don't know, um, Sandy, if you want to say a couple of words about kind of what, what those ideas are, because I, yeah, again, the concern is if we keep waiting for the conflict to end, we could be waiting for a very long time. And then you have Ukraine stranded without uh, you know, any of the security that will be required for economic uh, rebuilding, for reconstruction, and all of these other things that are also in part of a sovereign uh, Ukraine. So that again, that's what I like so much about the memo is it doesn't wait for this kind of magical distant day, but there's some real tangible steps that the alliance could take now. Yeah, ab absolutely. And that's uh, what we've tried to do with the so-called uh, NATO-Ukraine Deterrence and Defense Partnership. We're suggesting that just repeating the Bucharest formula uh, 
would be insufficient. It might even be kind of productive after doing that without any follow through for 15 years. Uh, so finding at least a, some, first of all, something more robust that we say uh, that you know, it's inevitable that Ukraine will become a member of NATO. It's only with, with that can it be truly secure. But at the same time, not force the issue of actual accession. I, 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 I'm attracted to what Ian just said, but I'm not sure it would gain consensus in the alliance. Uh, but but not sit on your hands either. Take what we're doing now on an ad hoc basis to uh, arm and equip the Ukrainian armed forces, hopefully with with serious benefits for the upcoming counteroffensive. Uh, but kind of turn that into an institutional relationship, even if the war is, is still going on, uh, to more systematically uh, kind of adopt uh, Ukraine as as a partner of NATO that we will continue to arm, equip, and train uh, to to the point that it does become virtually in, invulnerable to Russian uh, further aggression. So uh, there could be other things that go with that. Some may be more, considered risky, such as putting some uh, NATO personnel at, at training facilities inside Ukraine on Ukrainian-controlled territory. Maybe at least engaging allies on, on a version of Ian's idea of uh, providing a security guarantee for, for t territories that are fully under uh, Ukrainian government control right now, even before there's a ceasefire or armistice or whatever, so that they don't, the Russians don't have the ability essentially to hold hold the, the situation hostage indefinitely. Uh, and that would show that on the one hand, we're not getting ahead of ourselves. We're not actually trying to convince allies that now's the time to for Ukraine literally to exceed as much as some of us would like to see that. Uh, but uh, at the same time, not just engaging in, in hollow rhetoric, which uh, sadly has been tried and, and has failed in, in the past. You know, if, if I could add on that, you know, Sandy outlined with the defense and deterrence program for, for Ukraine, it's kind of what I'd call a map on steroids, a membership action plan on steroids. And it's kind of got, got three elements. It's got the provision of equipment, the equipment they need now to win decisively and quickly and on their on, on their terms. And you know what that is. That's the long range fires, it's the aircraft and, and, and such. But two, that equipment by flowing it in quickly and decisively, not only enables Ukraine to win, it enhances Ukraine's interoperability. So it can fully meet the requirements of interoperability we expect of our allies. And then third, the paper makes very clear that this program is explicitly designed to facilitate Ukraine's membership into NATO. And this is something the alliance should have the consensus, right. or the consensus should be able to sustain that even, even today. Uh, and, and I would argue it's pretty urgent. Because can you imagine, in the context of a of a counteroffensive, it's probably going to be costly, bloody, uh, for, for for the Ukrainians, for the West to be ambiguous in its signal to Ukraine's aspirations to join the alliance. That's a terribly disillusioning signal for the alliance to send in the middle of the counteroffensive. It's absolutely the wrong signal to send to the Russians. So. This is something that is important to do in terms of building the momentum to completing the vision of Europe, to bringing Ukraine in. But it also, I would argue, has an operational edge to it. 
because this is an important signal to the Ukrainians and morale is you know, as, as important as equipment when you come down to these kind of contingencies. I, I, to build was, on things that are going on in the bilateral spheres, our mutual friend Steve Flanagan reminded us UCOM yeah. already has a security assistance group with Ukraine. These kinds of uh, existing relationships could be leveraged to ramp up the kind of assistance that would be provided under this defense and deterrence partnership. In so fact, you're not I, standing still. I, I was going to raise the, that, that very thing. Uh, there's a lot of elements that are already out there. We just have to string them together. But let me ask you all, uh, you were talking about consensus in the allies. Um, as you've talked about this among the allies, and now you've written it down and you've had a rollout a couple of weeks ago, I guess, of your of your piece. Uh, what are allies saying? Do they have any better ideas or do you think they, that they maybe can line up behind this with a little bit of urging? Or are you finding that the allies are all over the place and it's going to be hurting cats? And let me throw one more thing into that in terms of of the allies, isn't it Yap uh, Dehoop Sheffer who's who has been uh, peddling a program as well of guarantees? Is it Yap or is it Rasmussen? I can't remember. Uh, one of the Rasm Rasmussen, the Kiev Security Compact. Yeah. So how does how uh, wh where where do you think he would be on some of these ideas? Uh, is it maybe uh, putting those two together, or uh, or are they dissimilar? So first question is where are the allies in all this, and secondly. Uh, Rasmus, it's uh, his Kiev, uh, his Kiev proposal. How, you know how similar or dissimilar is that to what you all are suggesting? Yeah, you want to go first? You've been doing more traveling. Uh, yeah, I'll take a shot of the first one and I'll defer to, to, to Sandy and his views and, and, and Rasmus and too. You know, I look at kind of three categories. There's first um, the Central European states. So think of the Baltic states, Poland, Romania, Czech Republic, Slovakia and such, uh, they would like to bring Ukraine in almost today. And they would certainly support a DDP, if some, not something more, more robust. They are advocating for a clear process, steps, maybe even date certain, date certain, but not pushing for, for, for that explicitly. Then there's a second category, kind of largely the West European countries. And I'll put them in from my, my engagements with them as largely looking at the United States. And the third is the United States. And I would argue the United States is the one country in the alliance that is most hesitant, most uneasy about uh, elevating Ukraine's relationship in a significant way. That is animating a process of, 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 of accession for Ukraine because of a fear that this will provoke the Russians to even be more aggressive on the battlefield. So when I look at that second group, the West Europeans, what I see countries that are actually be willing to do it. They're not bold enough uh, to stand on their own and push it. But if the United States were to swing in behind something like a DDPP or more robust, I think they would swing in. Everyone points to Germany. The more I've talked to German officials, the more I've concluded they're basically in the same way they were on tanks and planes. They don't want to be the ones pushing it. They don't want to lead. But if the United States would step forward, they'll swing in behind very quickly. So I think there is room in the alliance to, to support something like Sandy and I have proposed, the ball is really in Washington's court. Yeah, that's my feeling. I haven't had as many uh, conversations as Ian has in, in recent weeks, but I've been getting a lot of uh, in, supportive emails from around the circuit. Uh, I think not only the Central and East Europeans, but the Nordics uh, lean very much in favor of uh, something like we've proposed. And 
they're, but they're all asking, you know, where, where's the U.S.? And uh, the U.S. has serious arguments, which, which we'll have to deal with. Uh, we, we all heard this in a, in a recent uh, Zoom meeting that, uh, you know, one of the guiding principles of the current effort to support Ukraine is uh, no boots on the ground uh, and avoid any risk of escalation to World War III, to, nu to nuclear exchange. And they, they say, if, if that works now, why should, should we not stick with the same principles in terms of any long-term commitment to Ukraine security? I think the answer is it won't be as credible a deterrent, uh, but we, we are gonna have to uh, address that. Uh, but uh, in terms of, what was, what was the other question? Oh, the Rasmussen thing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. my understanding is that that is closer to the porcupine porcupine model. Yeah, it's this, that was a, a a project commissioned by Zelensky. He asked Rasmussen to work with Yermak, the chief of staff, on some kind of uh, proposal for security guarantees, right, short right. of NATO membership, and uh, he, they did come up with something very similar to what others are calling the porcupine defense, maybe less less fleshed out in terms of what what it would entail but uh the ukrainians seem to uh see it as a, only as a transitional step not as the final answer so i think in, in that sense uh these people on this on the screen today are probably in agreement with with, with, with that that it's could be a starting point but it's not uh sufficient in and of itself you know I, well, it's a fundamentally flawed strategy i mean it's an i would argue the porcupine model is the one that is probably predominant in the biden administration and mm -hmm. uh and those who advocate it are really looking to israel as a model for ukraine's in europe in europe's security architecture and i would argue that they're confusing two very very different geopolitical alignments I mean, look at israel its adversaries are discombobulated they're unorganized they're disunified some are relatively poor and by the way they're non-nuclear in so contrast, Russia is, well, <laughs> but Israel is, is nuclear, but yeah. I don't think the Arab countries have nuclear bombs. Uh, maybe Israel. I mean, maybe um, maybe Iran, but that's not the immediate front for 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 Israel. But Russia is a unitary actor. Its economic magnitude dwarfs that of of Ukraine. Its population is what three and a half times that of Ukraine, and I would argue. Russia's determination to suborn Ukraine dwarfs the intensity of the Arab world's writ large um, intentions regarding Israel. And then, by the way, as we just mentioned, Israel's a nuclear power. We can't forget that point. I can assure you the Ukrainians don't forget that point, mm -hmm. particularly following their signature, the 1994 Budapest, Budapest Memorandum. No, that's right. No, I, I, they've, I've, they've been reminding me of that as well. But let me let's go back to the U.S. and the U.S. as the as the issue here uh, in terms of you know some leadership towards towards what you all are talking about. Uh, and you mentioned Ian that, uh, that that the porcupine strategy seems to be where a lot of the U.S. government is. But let's let's unpack the U.S. government here a bit. I mean, is it? You know, Vilnius is 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 right around the corner, but there's still time if we wanted to try to lead the uh, lead the allies in the direction that you're talking about, at least to a starting point. You know, get them to a 
someplace uh, where they can be pointed in that direction. Um, is is this a solidly held view in the U.S. government that we're not going to be raising this at Vilnius? This is this is not, or is this something coming out of the NSC and their folks at state and DOD who want to? I mean, are there splits, or are we really looking at a pretty solid administration view? They're lining up behind uh, Biden, you know, no third world war, and and you're not going to see any U.S. effort to try to point us in the right direction at Vilnius. So unpack that for us. Where is the U.S. In terms of its piece parts, <laughs> well, we all have friends across the administration, so one wants to be careful about those conversations. But my sense is, is that there is a fairly robust interagency discussion going on. This, but uh, I, my sense is is that the uh, Porcupine model has got most robust interest because they haven't locked in on anything yet. But most robust interest and advocacy, probably from the White House. Uh, driven in large part by the concerns that, that, that Sandy, Sandy raised. There is a real profound concern about escalation uh, in, in, in the White House, the risks that come with it. There is an estimation, which I think is wrong, that um, you know, a deeper link between Ukraine and NATO will trigger Putin into doing something even more escalatory. Uh, I can't imagine what's more escalatory than tearing up one third of, of, of Ukraine and committing all these, all, all these atrocities. Um, and in fact, you know, every step we've taken in the right direction hasn't provoked Russia to do anything more, more drastic. Um, so that's where, 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 where I, where, where I say, see the state within the administration. It's evolving. It's evolving maybe fairly quickly because it's being driven. Uh, their, their discussions on these models are being driven in part by the Vilnius summit. And they're, of course, thinking about how it might link to the Washington summit. Right. But one thing about your question that I wanted to catch uh, it was kind of like you're saying, what, is the, what, what does the administration need to do draw our allies along? I look at it kind of a little differently. What do our allies need to do to drag the administration along uh, and convince them that their, their concerns are exaggerated and that actually that the steps that we're advocating are an important step to not only a more decisive and quick outcome for this, this war, uh, but also setting the foundation blocks for a post-conflict or, or, or post-hot war situation where that is, that is more stable and secure. Well, and I think that begs uh, European leadership. Is there a strong, US, uh, strong European leadership that could come to Washington uh, and bring us along? And I don't think, I, I don't see that. And so, I, so I, that's, that's why I phrased it the way I did. I don't see the Europeans coming here. Well, I know Jim has another question, but I have a small follow-on question kind of to the list of concerns that you've heard from the, from the administration. But do you hear it all about like the risk to NATO itself? So if we go ahead and, you know, extend security guarantees or move forward with providing the more robust guarantees that we're talking about here while the war is ongoing. How do you think about the risk? So say Putin does probe that. I would imagine that the, the administration would also be worried about, I mean, you being drawn into direct conflict and, and or that that if if we don't marshal the strong response that such probing would require, that it would then undermine the whole Article Five and be the end of NATO. So, do you do you hear that piece of it much? And I guess in your thinking about this, how do you weigh that risk? I haven't heard that quite as as uh, apocalyptically as you just suggested. I think there is a there is concern about being divisive within the alliance by pushing this issue now. But I think in the argument there is 
why do we need to push this now? Can't we can't we defer that debate till past Vilnius? There is a big 50th or 75th anniversary summit coming up next year. So let's uh, th those who may in principle be more sympathetic to a, a, a bold initiative on Ukrainian membership, I think may, may have been convinced because of reluctance at the top not to, not to push this uh, in the run up to Vilnius. As I was saying earlier, I think that's a missed opportunity, uh, particularly you know, if the counteroffensive doesn't go as well, we end up with a stalemate, it will kind of allow things to drift in, in an unhealthy direction. And we could be facing much harder choices, including boots on the ground, uh, you know, a year from now. So uh, better to kind of stake out the high ground on this issue sooner rather than later. Uh, but like, like Ian, I don't, don't see uh, other allies with the clout required ready to push the administration really hard on this. Uh, that could change. Maybe the Brits have just uh, helped with, uh, the, what was it, the Storm Shadow cruise missile, uh, which will at least uh, fill some of the gap created by our reluctance to provide ATACMs. So maybe they, they can uh, step forward on this issue too. Yeah, there are, that's a good example of the allies meet hopefully dragging the U.S. Uh, in that direction. But Ian, I don't. I, I'm just to hear your yeah. response. I too haven't quite heard that argument that you you rolled out, and, and so I'm kind of in the same uh, position as, as Sandy. But I'll tell you one thing that does concern me uh, is that people underestimate how much NATO's actions or inaction uh, in this conflict in support of Ukraine does shape uh, NATO and the confidence its own allies have in it and the perceptions of our adversaries. We are in a position where NATO has been deterred. Uh, no boots on the ground. We don't want to NATOize this conflict. We're afraid of escalation of that. Uh, it's almost, it is literally public policy. We're not going to NATOize this, which does have the risk of signaling. We're not ready to fight. An alliance that's a military alliance that's not ready to fight against its chief adversary is an alliance that risks losing the confidence of its member states. And I can assure you the Central Europeans, the frontline states, are watching this. I mean, isn't it stunning that NATO is not having a formal role in the training of Ukrainian troops in combat, combat operations, but the EU is? That's not a good signal. That's one of the reasons why Sandy and I agree that NATO has got to become engaged in, as an institution, as an element of the West's response to this aggression, that more than just being a consultative body and offering Ukraine lessons in civil military relations. So we advocate that they should be at a minimum training Ukrainian soldiers, and as Sandy pointed out, perhaps training them also uh, on Ukrainian territory in uncontested areas. Because a NATO that is perceived as being unready to fight its chief adversary is a NATO that's a, le a less effective alliance. We're already seeing the effects of, uh, of nuclear coercion being used to uh, intimidate us into making choices which could have fateful importance down the road. We're seeing it uh, already in the doubts about the credibility of the U.S. nuclear guarantee on the part of the Koreans. Uh, similar anxieties certainly going to appear here if it, if we seem too reluctant to uh to, to you know take take risks for deterrence uh 
it's great that we're beefing up forces even further along the eastern flank, although we, there, there, there's still gaps that need to be filled in that regard that we cover in our paper. Uh, but uh, this more basic issue of uh, being convincing that we're ready to go go to war for our allies. And if Ukraine becomes an ally, we'll be just as ready to defend them as we're ready to defend the Baltic states, Poland, uh, the UK, and France. Well, if I can, uh, Andre, let me let me jump in. Take us back to Vilnius and talk about what I. It sounds like to me they're going to be announcing a bit more about the plans that uh, that Sandy just uh, referred to about beefing up uh, NATO forces along the, uh, the the frontier. And and you know the SACIR and the NATO military authorities have been working on uh, much more operational military planning. Uh, for the past couple of years. And just from some of the squeaks and squawks you hear out of Mons and Brussels, it sounds like on this, it sounds like maybe in Vilnius, they're, they're about ready to announce something. Uh, every now and then we'll hear a little bit, they'll the shape will send someone to Washington and we'll all gather around the, the Atlanta Council and we'll hear just a little bit. And then the rest is classified, you know, and so and so I, I have to say, and, and I'll see what want to see what you guys think. If 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 in fact NATO is putting together some military plans to really take the, the NATO military capability into a whole new area in terms of planning, nations are gonna have assignments, nations are gonna know what they need to take to uh to defend their part of the territory, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I I have to say, I, I'm not so sure allies are gonna put the money towards doing uh their bit. Uh, to do that. And I'm hoping that we're not going to see a wonderful a bit of staff work done by the NATO military authorities uh, in, in an area that NATO hasn't been planning since the Cold War days. Uh, and they're going to announce this thing. And then the allies are going to roger up to that. But when it comes time to putting money towards their part in, 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 in implementing those plans, they're not going to be able to do it. I mean, I, I'm really worried about that. We can't you know, we have the wolf at the door right now, Putin is, and, and that has not really, to my mind, resulted in the kind of defense spending I was expecting nations to do. A lot of rhetoric, a lot of aspirations coming out of out of Madrid, you know, but uh, but if the NATO military authorities at Vilnius are going to announce something that is really uh, shows the, the, the military teeth of the alliance, or at least the planning for it, I'm worried that the allies, uh, while they might sign up to it in the years to come, they're not going to come up with the spending. Am I being cynical here? Uh, or what have you guys heard in terms of what Shape is thinking about is going to announce and ally willingness to really put money on the table? Yeah, I'm not totally up to speed. I think something was uh, announced today by the, uh, the Chads who met in the military committee about the uh, submission or the completion of. Uh, of the plans that would have the fully fleshed out troop assignments uh, to actually deliver these uh, implementation of these plans and that allies are on board uh, on this. So that could be the kind of announcement for the summit that uh, you're describing. Uh, but there's certainly good reason from past experience to be skeptical that allies will fully uh, pony up the resources required. Uh, the 2% goal is still not met by the majority of allies. While there's a net increase of NATO spending, when you look back uh, at the trends since 2014, there's still a lot of uh, a lot of gaps uh, and a lot of laggards among the nations. And uh, it's not 
particularly inspiring that they're going to repeat the 2% goal, maybe make 2% a floor rather than uh, a benchmark, but uh, uh, whether that will lead to any any country except for maybe the Poles and, and the Balts from exceeding 2%, uh, I have my doubts. You know, uh, Ian, are you following out? I'm, I'm trying to, and I think it's been a big mistake of the alliance to kind of shroud these plans in secrecy. Because, um, you know, I, I think a lot of good work has gone into it, and I'm interested to learn more about it. And I think more public information there is about it, perhaps potential to be more confidence in NATO's readiness to deter um, it, it, its adversaries. I, I would say this, is that, you know, following the Madrid summit, I've been a little bit underwhelmed about the alliance's follow-up to the commitment of not one inch. At the Madrid summit, the alliance, you know, came in and said, we're no longer going to do uh, deterrence by, by punishment. We're going to hold the line because we don't want ever to have, we don't want to ever have our allies experience what the Ukrainians experienced in Busha and other areas where there were just atrocious atrocities committed by occupying forces. So here we are today, and there was an expectation there were going to be brigade-level deployments put in the Baltics, in Romania. Um, they're not there. They're headquarter elements. Some of them even, headquarter elements haven't even arrived. And I got to tell you, this is important not only for Ukraine, for NATO security, uh, it's important for our strategy regarding Ukraine. Because when we forward deploy those kind of level, those kind of brigade level elements, especially with the enablers, uh, you're not only reinforcing security in, in Europe and the security of NATO allies, you're complicating Russian military planning. And you're demonstrating a, a readiness and resolve to fight if necessary. So there is a broad security issue at stake here. There's also a kind of more tactical uh, matter at, at hand, which is, you know, complicating Russian military planning, putting more military pressure on them. And that's the reason why Sandy I put in our paper as kind of the first recommendation that should come from the Vilnius summit is, the you know, is living up to the standards of not one inch and deploying by the end of the year full brigades in, the, in these EFP countries, enhanced partnership for defense countries. Uh, if Alliance can't do that, that's a real troubling indicator of its, its readiness to fight morally and its preparedness in terms of capability. Before, Jim, I know you want to do your a little bit of a reflective question, but um, I'm going to give you a straw man to shoot down, Ian. Um, but because I think sometimes you hear little inklings of this every now and again, which is it to pushing back against fortifying the, the eastern flank which is, well, Russia's so degraded, they can't even beat the Ukrainians, so why would we invest in that kind of um, deterrence and posture changes if, you know, if Russia is such a, a such a weaker force than we previously thought? Is that the prudent way to be spending limited resources? I mean, I, I'm not, I'm, I put that up there because we hear it, I don't agree with it, but I, 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 you're always so compelling about kind of shooting these arguments down, so just to give you an opportunity about you know, really articulating what the, the, the counter argument is to that kind of thinking. Yeah. Well, one, I would say that Russia with its degraded forces today are still doing a lot of damage to the Ukrainians. Uh, and they could theoretically apply that force against allies that are underprotected. Um, and then two, you can, it probably it's a safe assumption that uh, once this war stabilizes and we get into this, you know, cold Korea-like confrontation, the Russians are going to have, Putin's going to drive a hard effort to, to reconstitute his forces. And we want to be ready for that. We don't want to respond to that after the fact. 
And remember, the, the allies in the U.S. government uh, highlighted this part of the Madrid decision as a, a conceptual breakthrough, moving away from deterrence by punishment to deterrence by denial. But now we're clearly backpedaling on that. Uh, and while maybe in the very short term, the Russians are unlikely to do a limited land grab, we can't completely rule it out, particularly if their backs to the wall. I mean, we, we keep looking at uh, escalation around Crimea or uh, their continued uh, attacks on infrastructure inside Ukraine, but they could uh, escalate laterally uh, just to embarrass NATO. Uh, so the decision to defend every so that they can't occupy, even for a few days, uh, occupied territory that could be treated the way Bucha was treated during that time is uh, still valid. Jim, bring us home. Well, you know, I have to say, I've been debating whether I should do something reflective, which I really want to, would like to do, but I'm so spun up on uh, my disappointment on, with Madrid as well. I just, I'm not in a reflective mood. I'm a little more aggressive. So I'm going to, I'm going to, to save my reflections on life since 1990 for the three of us, <laughs> uh, you know, work those early days of not just enlargement, but trying to create a different Europe uh, and seeing where we are now. It's just, uh, uh, but, I, but I'm, I'm not going to go that way. Uh, I, I think I, think I want to ask you all, how do you think the U.S. is doing in this? And, then my, and so two, two points. One is, have you all heard of a big U.S. initiative or a U.S. Uh, something or another for Vilnius that, that's going to really show that we're trying to take Madrid, which had a lot of great rhetoric, uh, you know, great aspirations, and uh, we, it was historic, you know, uh, and we've been kind of disappointed. At least we think so. I mean, this, I, there's not a lot of transparency with NATO. You don't hear a whole lot, either from the U.S. side there or from NATO itself. A lot of little videos, but that's about it. But but how how are we doing in terms of what we might present in Vilnius? Um, but also in terms of the debates within the USG over where we should put our emphasis. Is it on the pacing threat, which is China? Is it on the uh, uh, the more urgent threat, or have whatever they said about uh, what's happening in with Russia? Where are we now? Uh, have we resolved those fights over what's the priority? What should we be doing in terms of U.S. force posture in Europe versus Indo-Pacific? Or, or is that the fight still going on? Uh, and that's kind of holding back a lot of initiatives uh, that we might otherwise be doing because there's some in the Pentagon particularly or the NSC that want to keep our eye on the ball in the Indo-Pacific and, and try to hold back on things that we're doing in, in the European theater. So, so those two aspects, the U.S. and Vilnius, are we going to arrive with something or are we just going to sit there and have some rhetoric? Uh, and then secondly, where are we in the internal U.S. debate about uh, is it uh, Pacific first or is it Europe first? My sense is uh, that, this, at least as far as I know, there's no big U.S. initiative uh, brewing. Uh, beyond uh, you know, highlighting the progress we've made since Madrid. And there is a lot of progress, there's a lot to report. And I think that on the issue of the Indo-Pacific versus the transatlantic, uh, I, I think there's actually been a lot of uh, convergence within the alliance, that there are a lot of security issues posed by China beyond the military domain relating to supply chain security, uh, avoiding dependencies on Chinese-owned infrastructure, uh, was the Chinese are getting more 
active along Europe, Europe's periphery, whether it's in North Africa, the Arctic. So I think that you, you'll hear uh, positive words in the communique about uh, allies getting more serious about these, uh, these, these challenges, but it's not gonna be a headline grabbing uh, initiative. Uh, I, I still hope that having stirred, the, stirred up the debate on, uh, on Ukrainian membership, the administration, administration might see it as in its interest to adopt something like our deterrence and defense partnership uh, as a way of showing that we're taking Ukraine's long-term security seriously. We're not going to allow ourselves to be subject to Russian bullying or, or vetoes. And uh, there's enough time to prepare the ground for a positive response to that if the administration is ready to do it. I don't sense that they think now is the time. So we have to keep working on our friends in the administration to, to rethink that, that issue. Uh, you never know what kind of surprises are gonna occur. So uh, we don't necessarily have as much time as we think. Right. Ian. Well, Jim, you, I remember when we were working together at the Pentagon, we used to think about summits literally about 18 months in advance. I know. have a dozen ideas and they'd be whittled down yeah. to maybe two or three good ones. Yeah. Um, and I haven't seen evidence of that in the lead up to this summit. Uh, what I have heard, are, I think, are halfway steps, not even halfway steps, totally inadequate steps. For example, maybe a deliverable being an upgrading of the NATO-Ukraine commission to a council. That's <laughs> meaningless. Um, that is operationally, it is diplomatically, and it's geopolitically meaningless. And that is a terrible signal, an inadequate signal, to use a nice word, to send to the Ukrainians. Yes, is to kind of grade the Biden administration, the managing of, the, of this conflict. You know, we got to give them kudos for pulling together the alliance after a period of great disunity around a, a crisis like this. And so they've generated a certain amount of unity. They have been a catalyst for the transition of a tremendous amount of economic and above all military aid uh, to, to Ukraine. So I give them huge kudos for that. But the problem is we're just not doing enough that, and that we could be doing to enable the Ukrainians to win more decisively and more quickly and on, on their terms. Uh, we're, it's almost as if we're self-deterred. And that self-deterrence is perpetuating this conflict. Uh, it's resulting in higher costs for the Ukrainians in blood, not just treasury, but blood. It's draining our resources. Um, if we had done a lot of what we are doing now, eight months ago, we'd probably be in a very different and better, better situation. Uh, so I'm hoping that they'll lift the self-deterrence and act more decisively. Maybe Vilnius could be a catalyst for that. But then just the last thing I got to say, I got to go back to your history lesson, your question about whether or not we should be thinking about the past. When I think about the two big lessons of the last 30 years in Euro-Atlantic security, the first is, is the gray zones are catalysts for conflict. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the fact that we've left Ukraine in the gray zone uh, basically catalyzed Putin's hegemonic ambitions into violent conflict and the Ukrainians are paying a bloody price right now and we're paying a price a price too. The second big lesson is that membership in NATO has been a driver of security and stability. It's very interesting to me that every NATO country has never that every new member of NATO, every country that has acceded on their own efforts to get in, have ended up more secure and Europe as a, as a region has become more stable and, and, more, and, and more secure. And I'm hoping that those two lessons 
will be drivers of what come out of the Vilnius summit, because we need to start addressing decisively this gray zone and putting Ukraine and do, by doing that, putting Ukraine on a path to membership. We need that the broader, bigger geopolitical picture. And now it's a matter of urgency because that message, that's that signal from the transatlantic community is exactly what the Ukrainians are fighting for. It is a motivator. It is critical to their morale and it's critical to communicating to Russia. Ukraine is off the table for them, for Putin in particular. Well, Ian, you have you have opened the door. So, Andrea, you can blame him for extending our podcast a little bit, because I'm going to ask uh, now uh, Sandy uh, something similar. I, I, uh, I, you know, Ian talked about his three those three lessons or two lessons coming out of the past 30 years. You know, I, I Sandy, I've always admired you and um, and you were such a great presence in the 1990s as we were trying to deal with post-Cold War Europe. As you remember, there was a small group uh, that, mm -hmm. that were doing this. And uh, I was honored to be a foot soldier in that uh, to try to help implement what you all were de developing out of the out of the White House and uh, during the 1990s out of NATO. And so as you look back, I mean, Ian, Ian talked about the stability that's come from enlargement, et cetera. And, I, and enlargement is part of this picture. But, you know, we at those days, we had a broader picture about European security, broader goals. It was a different time, a very different time, a different set of leadership, particularly in Europe. Uh, and now, as Ian was saying, you know, 30 years later, what, what are your feelings coming out of what we all were hoping for in the 90s? particularly the early 90s, the London Declaration, you know, all of that. Um, here we are now uh, back uh, doing military planning as we were talking about shape. What, what, any feelings as you look back, what would, you, what would your lessons be or certainly your reflections from those days? Well, that opens a, a, big, a, big, a big door. But let me make, offer a few thoughts. First of all, it's obviously on a personal level sad to see a lot of the uh, things that we accomplished back in particularly in the 90s, in terms of uh, both NATO enlargement and uh, developing a strategic partnership between NATO and Russia, did work for at least for a time. But I certainly uh, would insist that enlarging NATO to the Central and East Europeans was absolutely a strategic imperative at the time. And that has been a, a great success. And we, sh we should continue to celebrate that, not let Russian propaganda make us feel like we're to blame this because at the end of the day, this is not about NATO. Uh, Putin feels threatened by Ukraine, by an independent democratic Ukraine, because he fears that the success of democracy in Ukraine will ultimately undermine his regime in Russia. And so, uh, yes, there may have been things we could have done along the way. Uh, I think particularly during the Bush administration, when I, I think there was a tendency on the part of some people to view not Russia as uh, uh, as an adversary or not as an adversary, but as Russia as a country that didn't matter anymore. And I think this contributed to some of the resentment on Putin's part that uh, ultimately manifests itself in the uh, aggression against the Ukraine and Georgia. Uh, but, but it was still the right thing to do. And I think the vision of a Europe whole and free is still the right one. And I think that... Uh, this issue of Ukrainian membership is very much relevant to filling in that missing piece in the map of Europe that could become once again part of a, of a democratic community united by common values as well as interests. But it's not going to happen while Putin's still in power. But 
and, and one can't underestimate how tight his iron grip is on Ru Russian society right now. But but there are curious things happening inside Russia. Uh, Mr. Prigozhin's daily outbursts denouncing Putin as the as the sclerotic old grandfather, uh, and clearly the uh, continued uh, resentment on the part of Russian citizens about being thrown into a war they they fully don't don't fully understand. Uh, so we have to think about how we can engage with with the, the next generations in Russia in the hope that we can get back on the path that we were on in the 90s with with a partnership between NATO and Russia. But this time, the, Russia has to uh, not only adopt Western values, but it has to shed its imperial uh, ambitions. That's that's the harder part, because you do see plenty of uh, normal Russians happily talking about killing every Ukrainian that crosses their path yeah, and, and erasing Ukraine from the map as, as, a, as an independent, not only country, but as, as a as a as a nation, as an ethnic ethnic group. Yeah. So uh, there's still work to be done, but but, but starting with a, a more forthcoming attitude on Ukrainian membership would be a, a good way to proceed, just to bring it back to our original subject. Yeah. And one, one additional thought, uh, it looks like the, NATO hasn't figured out what they're going to do about the successor to uh, Mr. Stoltenberg, my, my, my ex-boss. And he's done a, an amazing job with all his repeated career extensions. But uh, I think in addition to what we say about Ukraine's ultimate destination being NATO, to appoint a new Secretary General from Central and Eastern Europe would uh, underpin that message quite quite strongly. Yeah. I hope that isn't too late. Uh, something that could could get, grab some headlines in, uh, in uh, Vilnius. Right. Maybe even the Lithuania. <laughs> That's right. I know one. <laughs> well, this has been really wonderful. Um, I mean, I I think you guys have laid out such a wonderful kind of roadmap um, and a, a clear way forward that is awfully compelling. Um, and I think with all of our work and you know all of your continued advocacy, both with allies and here at Washington, um, hopefully we can try to make clear the path and, and make some progress on many of the very excellent recommendations that you laid out. So thank you very much for the ideas and for joining us and articulating them all. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.